Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass Amherst student Maura Murray disappeared in the White Mountains of New Hampshire in one of the most perplexing mysteries of our time. For years, we have covered Maura's case and the tireless online community that surrounds it in great detail. We have since expanded our mission with this series, raising awareness and shining a light on the stories of other missing persons. We now sit on the board of directors of the nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing, which was founded by Bruce Maitland. Bruce's daughter, Brianna Maitland, went missing from Montgomery, Vermont on March 19th of 2004, just six weeks after and about 80 miles away from where Maura Murray vanished. Private Investigations for the Missing aims to assist with investigations for underserved families whose missing loved ones have been forgotten by the media or by law enforcement. Through our growing community, we hope to shed a light on these cold cases. Families and loved ones can reach out to us at investigationsforthemissing.org. This is Missing. Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I am doing very well. Can't complain. How are you today? I'm doing great. And we recorded this conversation with our friend Chloe Cantor of the True Crime Twins podcast on Wednesday, September 8th. So the day before this comes out. So it's pretty current. We're talking about Robert Durst's trial. Yes, Chloe has been following Robert Durst's alleged criminal activity for a long time now, and she's been staying current with the trial as well. And during the interview, you'll hear us mention the fact that it's been so long since his arrest and the trial and the verdict, which might come out today, we're not sure, but the prosecution has rested the case. They've had closing arguments. Honestly, I thought he was already convicted, and and we say this during the interview. I think that was the most surprising thing, aside from the fact that Chloe is so well-versed 
in his criminal life and manages to synopsize everything that's happened with him since like 1982 in in just a couple of minutes and it's very informative and very concise and uh very digestible uh love this conversation love revisiting this topic yeah absolutely and i agree it does feel like uh something that that has already happened um i guess his trial started in march of 2020 and got postponed due to the pandemic and just picked back up in may of 2021 so here we are now at the end of it and yeah he was originally arrested for this in 2015 so it's been a long haul and of course he is on trial for the killing of susan berman someone who was his friend in los angeles in 2000 uh also Durst allegedly killed Morris Black in Texas in 2001, and his first wife, Kathleen McCormick, disappeared in New York in 1982, and that case is actually coming up in the trial as well. So this is interesting for people who follow missing person cases and even no-body prosecutions. And I don't want to sound crude in this, but once the verdict comes out, I think either not guilty or guilty, there's got to be some sort of suicide watch put on Mr. Durst because he's clearly not mentally well. And whether he is incarcerated or he's out as a free man, I think that he's got a lot of issues that he needs to deal with uh, emotionally. Okay, everybody, I hope you enjoy this episode and make sure to follow True Crime Twins on social media. There are links in the show notes and make sure to subscribe to their show. Also, links in the show notes for that. And as always, check out our website, crawlspace-media.com for all the latest information regarding our network and what we got going on. Welcome to the podcast, Chloe Cantor. How are you today? I am doing wonderful. How are you? Couldn't be better because we have you on the show. You, you're, you're looking good. You, you're sounding good. You have true crime twins up and running again. You have another project that's in the hopper. And I feel like we went so long waiting for it, like waiting for true crime twins, waiting for this like productive the great productive era and i feel like we're here i feel like for whatever reason there's a swell of productivity that's coming out of the uh the canter household is, is that is that accurate do you feel super motivated yes and this has always been something i've just really enjoyed doing it's never been a burden for me uh you know even if it's just doing research behind the scenes talking to you guys behind the scenes or actually producing my own content it's so fun. And when I was in the hospital, I mean, I don't I don't know if I've ever mentioned this, but my voice was messed up from um, my illness because of paralysis of the diaphragm. So my voice was very breathy and slurred and quiet, which is not good for uh, podcasting, but it, it came back. So there were so many things that were like the lights at the end of the tunnel that when I was so miserable, I could look forward to and, you know, driving seeing my daughter walking. One of them was podcasting. So that would probably explain the swell of productivity that you're seeing is, you know, I'm home. Uh, I have my life back and I'm ready to enjoy it and 
do things that I find fascinating. That is amazing. And Chloe, tell us about your schooling, if you don't mind. What uh, what are you doing with school? Right now, I'm pursuing my master's degree in criminal justice, and that should be finished, I believe, in May or June of 2022, which is very exciting. I previously earned my graduate certificate. My goal has always been to advance my education in this subject as much as possible, just because I, I want to I want to learn as much as possible so I can contribute to society. Are we going to have to call you a doctor pretty soon? Oh, no, we're not there yet. I I would certainly be interested in get, getting my doctorate once I'm at that point, but I'll focus on the master's first. But I probably won't have you called me doctor, even if I were a doctor. Okay. I think that's just like kind of, yeah, not not really. Yeah, you definitely have to call us doctor, even though we're not technically doctors, but that's, you know, we appreciate that prefix. It's more like a term of endearment. Like doc? Like what's up, doc? I mean, that works. I mean, not for me. <laughs> Dr. Reen Stierna. MD. MD. MD, PhD. PC for podcaster. Yeah. Do you, um, I'm assuming that before you enroll in these classes, you have to address the dean of the school um, specifically and let him know or let her know that you work with us. That way they know exactly <laughs> how to approach you and and what sort of assignments to give you because at this point you're so much more advanced than the other students. Right. And not to cross you, obviously. Right. Of course. So they think, I think that they separate us kind of based on life experience. So like there's a lot of police officers in the program, so they probably get their own special treatment. And then there's, you know, podcast celebs <laughs> that also get special treatment in grad school. I thought for sure you were going serious with it. And I was like, I can't believe she took that question seriously. <laughs> Such a deadpan delivery. Awesome. <laughs> well, amazing. And uh, very excited for True Crime Twins to come back. Uh, you have an episode coming out this week about Sophia McKenna from Connecticut, which is a fascinating case I had not heard of. And um, yeah, qu quite disturbing. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that um, and direct people to your coverage on True Crime Twins? Absolutely. And if you haven't subscribed to our feed, please do that way when our episodes come out, you are informed immediately with push notifications on your phone. I think it's this Friday, a new episode will be released and it will be our part one of our coverage on Sophia McKenna, who disappeared in May of 2018. She's actually lost at sea, which isn't something that we come across too frequently when we're looking at these cases. So that kind of piques the interest, but it's much more complicated than someone who is just presumed to be drowned. She did go missing at sea, but there are so many uh, clues that are out there that signal that maybe this was foul play. There is Snapchat evidence from that night with pictures that were taken shortly before. Sophia's last known activity was a series of eight phone calls in the middle of the night to her mother, which has been a subject of much speculation to the community and hopefully law enforcement as well. It's a case that could have a number of answers. Part one, we will cover the case. I'll talk about conversations that I had with Sophia's friends and family. The second part, 
will be talking to Sophia's mother directly. You'll hear from her, I think, talking to family members, giving them that opportunity to make a statement breathes a little bit more life into the story. It helps the listeners sort of feel a sense of of this person and a huge goal of all, all of ours, I think, is to get people to care and more people should know about Sophia McKenna. Excellent work on that. It's uh, a challenge, like you said, when you have the situation being a lost at sea, and this is lost at, at the ocean, like lost in the ocean. So there's a, a huge daunting task there, along with all of the details that go into her life and her disappearance. So fantastic work on that. And yeah, anyone who uh, is interested uh, or has listened to True Crime Twins or even any other true crime podcast, yeah, give this one a, a listen because it's, um, it's a lot to it. Definitely. Yeah. Please subscribe to our feed and you can follow us on social media. We're on TikTok at True Crime Twins. Same handle for Twitter and on Instagram at True Crime Twins Podcast. You can also email us at True Crime Twins Podcast at gmail.com. If you want to discuss anything with us, we are pretty responsive. And Chloe, for this episode, we wanted to discuss the fellow named Robert Durst and his trial that is uh, ongoing currently. And this is something that you've been following pretty closely. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Absolutely. I have been you know, studying and working from home during my recovery. And I'm sure I'm not the only virtual employee out there that occasionally will have some background noise. And I know it's a little bit strange, but I like court TV and I find the proceedings interesting. And if I need a little break from doing homework, I, I like to see what's going on and the kind of legal language that's being used and, and what can go during cross-examination. And this trial has been very interesting to watch. So since I've been watching it, I do know a fair share of details. And I was interested in Robert Durst before the trial began. Robert Durst, for those who don't know, is the heir of a very expansive dynasty of uh, real estate in New York City. The Durst family owns many buildings in New York, and they um, are real estate moguls, essentially. Robert Durst is the oldest of the Durst children, but he never actually took charge of the business and hasn't worked for the Durst organization for a very long time. He had an onset of sort of odd, unusual, erratic behaviors, substance abuse starting pretty young, and he just has kind of been on the fringes of society ever since. In the late 1980s, his wife, Kathy, who was just about to graduate with her MD, be an actual doctor deserving of uh, that designation, she was set to graduate shortly from Albert Einstein School of Medicine in New York City and was last seen with Robert Durst at their home in South Salem, New York. So she would commute into the city for school, and they also had an apartment there because, as we discussed, the Durst's are very wealthy. There were rumors that Kathy was pursuing a separation, that she was pursuing perhaps a large settlement from Robert Durst, and there was evidence that Robert Durst was abusive towards Kathy. Kathy disappears and has not been recovered to this day. In 2000, Robert Durst's best friend, Susan Berman, a mobster's daughter turned writer who was Bobby's friend since college. She had been telling people 
that she called Albert Einstein School of Medicine pretending to be Kathy to give Bobby an alibi and that Robert was guilty of killing his wife. Apparently, she was telling friends this. Friends have testified at this trial, which is, you know, accusing Robert Durst of killing his best friend, Susan Berman. They're saying that he did so because she was telling people about what he had done and she had helped cover up the disappearance of his missing wife. Susan Berman was found killed, execution style, shot in the back of the head in her home. People have said that it appeared that she was trying to clean up after her dog. Her body was found sometime later when her dog was running loose in the street with blood on its paws. Okay, yeah, there's a lot going on with this case. And there are three victims overall here uh, of Durst. Um, And, of course, that's Kathleen McCormick Durst. That's Robert's first wife. There's Susan Berman, his longtime friend, who was killed in Los Angeles in 2000. And then his neighbor, Morris Black, who was killed in Texas in 2001. Might I just compliment the recap you gave us? That was an excellent recap on such a dense case with so many details. Uh, Fantastic work there. Um, And I have to admit, and I feel really uh, embarrassed by this, when Robert Durst was arrested, I kind of forgot about him until a couple days ago. And and then I was like, oh, he's he's actually going on trial. I I honestly thought that he had already gone through trial and been convicted, because it just kind of dropped off the the news cycle. Justice takes forever. <laughs> and the proceedings were delayed because of COVID. Right. That was cited as a reason. So I think his trial was supposed to start maybe even a year ago, and things just were getting delayed. Durst is yeah. very frail and in poor health. He's been testifying which is a fascinating aspect because typically you don't see defendants testifying um, on on behalf of their own defense because it's not typically a recommended strategy. And in this case, I'm sure his lawyer regrets having him do so because he's been caught in just countless lies. It's almost a mockery at this point, but he's been testifying in a wheelchair with a visible catheter. It doesn't look well at all. He says that he has hydrocephalitis or hydrocephalus or something like that, an issue with his brain and has a shunt. He's kind of a mess. And the prosecution has been accusing him of milking his physical issues to get sympathy from the jury. But I do think that his physical issues have also contributed in the delay of these proceedings. But today they're actually doing their closing arguments, probably as we speak right now, all testimony is done. Both prosecution and defense has rested in this case. In your opinion, Chloe, how long should this take? Should they be deliberating? And are they going to factor in his health, his perceived health in uh, what the verdict is? Because is he just too old and too frail to, to send back to prison for the rest of his life? It's hard to know what a jury is going to do. Some juries deliberate very quickly. It can take a very long time for others if they can't reach a unanimous decision a mistrial is declared. They haven't started deliberations yet. I'm, I'm not sure how long it's going to take. You know, I think that a lot of commentators have been saying, oh, it's obvious that he's guilty. He's definitely going to be found guilty. He was found not guilty of the third victim that Tim had discussed back in 2001, who prosecutors say was murdered for the same reason as Susan Berman, that he knew this man, Morris Black, 
knew that Bobby had killed Kathy, his first wife. Robert had met Morris when he was hiding out in Galveston, Texas, after a documentary came out that caught him in a lie regarding the Susan Berman case. He and Morris became friends. I think Robert was dressed up as a mute woman while hiding out in Galveston. This is a very eccentric kind of fugitive. But it was successful, except he started to trust his neighbor. And then I think his neighbor was maybe squeezing him for money, wanting his money in order to not go to authorities about his past crimes. And Morris ends up shot and dismembered with his body parts in garbage bags in Galveston Bay. Bob was actually found not guilty of this crime by reason of self-defense. He said that Morris attacked him and was shot in a struggle over the gun and that in a fugue state is the term that his defense used. He panicked and dismembered the body of Morris Black. So he gets he dismembered the guy, throws him in the bay, and he still gets acquitted for murder. What he admitted to doing with the Susan Berman case, you know, first he said that he was nowhere near the area. He had no plans with Susan, even though she had told people that Bobby was going to visit Los Angeles for Christmas. The only evidence of Bob's whereabouts during that time was in Northern California. And as Bob said in an interview, California is a big state. So they weren't really able to link him to the scene directly, except for the fact that a letter was received by the Beverly Hills Police Department that was handwritten in capital block letters, just the word cadaver in Susan Berman's address. Her body had been discovered before they had received that letter. But as Bob Durst said in an interview, it was a letter that only the killer could have written. A lot of people were suspicious that it was Bob that had written it because his wife, Kathy, was in medical school and worked on cadavers as part of her training. And it typically isn't a word that the layman would use when describing a dead body. They might say corpse or murder or death or, or something. Cadaver is a word that I feel requires some sort of basis of knowing in the first place or using in the first place. But then a stepson of Susan Berman found mail that Susan had kept and the handwriting matched the cadaver note completely. And this is an envelope written by Robert Durst. And it's like the exact same text, the exact same handwriting. And in this documentary, The Jinx, the producer shows Robert the two letters that not only have the same handwriting, but the same misspelling of the word Beverly in Beverly Hills. And he asks Bob if he knows which one of those two he wrote, the cadaver letter in his letter. And Robert could not identify the difference. So that really brought him even further into suspicion and some say even led to his arrest. His lawyers have changed course and they said, no, he did write the cadaver note, but he did not kill Susan. He went for the planned visit, found her dead, didn't call the police because he was afraid that they would recognize his voice and immediately assume that he did it because he was already under suspicion for his wife. So he wrote a handwritten note, cadaver, and left. That's, that's his story. 
Can we talk about the Jinx a little bit? Because so it, it was an amazing documentary. It came out in 2015. And Lance, to your point from earlier, I think when Durst was arrested, apparently right before the finale of the Jinx was released. So it seems the filmmakers um, must have been in contact with the FBI um, because Durst claimed that he was going to flee or commit suicide after uh, watching the finale, which he was not allowed to do. He was arrested beforehand. Um, so the filmmakers and the FBI were aware of that what was going to be on that finale, though Durst wasn't exactly um, aware quite yet. His explanation for that is he was caught being the person that wrote the cadaver note. He was caught in that lie. But he's saying, you know, just because I wrote the cadaver note, it doesn't mean that I killed her. But he thought at the time that now that they knew he wrote the cadaver note, that he was certainly going to be arrested for this crime, even though he continues to maintain his innocence. That's when he flees to New Orleans. And that's where he was eventually apprehended. And I'm reading this article here from the AP and uh, that, that came out today. And um, there's a quote from a Los Angeles-based attorney named David Ring. And he says, if Robert Durst gets acquitted on this case, I will be shocked along with the rest of the world. The evidence is beyond overwhelming that not only did he murder Susan Berman, but that he murdered his first wife, Kathy Durst, and also Morris Black. I mean, he got away with two murders. He's trying to get away with a third. It's not going to happen. End quote. Pretty strong statement there from a L.A.-based attorney. And does this qualify him as a serial killer? Yes. If he is indeed guilty of murdering those three people, I would say that he was a serial killer. I think his motivations were a little bit different than the typical serial killer. I don't know if he killed because of enjoying killing. Like, I think that's what a lot of killers are motivated by. They get a, a certain sense of satisfaction. Sometimes it's a sexual gratification from killing. With Bob, it seemed like he killed people when he felt like they were a threat to him. You know, Kathy was going to divorce him. And he had been abusive towards her and he had all this money. So she was a threat to his freedom and his finances. Susan was also a threat to his freedom if she was telling people about what he did. And Morris was apparently aware of what he had done and was maybe squeezing him for money. So it's when Bob felt like he was kind of trapped in a corner. Okay, so is there any working theory that he's been involved in other disappearances or other unsolved murders in the meantime? If you go online, you'll see speculation that, that he has been involved in other murders, but I don't think that any of that speculation has enough fact to back it up. Whoa, 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 whoa. To... wait a second, Chloe. You're, you're telling me that online I can find speculation about somebody being involved with murders and it might not be backed up with facts? I just, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and I wasn't <laughs> sure if you knew that. Zing. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. 
And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. I thought it was really interesting that Durst sort of commented in this trial while giving testimony on his um, sort of famous conclusion of the jinx there where he muttered under his breath um, that he killed them all. He said he either spoke too softly for the mic to hear or failed to utter what he was thinking. And the quote is, they'll all think I killed them all, of course. Instead of I killed them all, of course. He his argument was he was muttering to himself, so anything caught you know caught out loud is not gonna make much sense, I guess. But kind of did. I mean, boy, we isn't it crazy? We live in a time where somebody can get caught on a recording that he consented to for a documentary, just simply forgot to turn the recorder off. He gets caught admitting to murder, and and now there's a possibility that it's not going to be taken as seriously because he may have not really said what he meant to say, which was this, like how, what? So he meant to say, they think I killed them all. They all think I killed them all. Like seriously, like how there, there was a time when you, if that was the case, it was open and shut, right? You, you, you the knew jury... you were being recorded. You said it. <laughs> what, what, where's the question lie? I think it would be a, there would be less plausible deniability in this situation if one he wasn't muttering to himself, which is not the most typical behavior. I think people talk to themselves from time to time. Like when I'm alone, let's say I found like a twenty dollar bill in my pocket, I'd be like, "All right," even if no one else was in the room to acknowledge that with me, I'd like high five my cat. Like maybe <laughs> like it's not the weirdest thing in the world to occasionally talk to yourself, but the way that he does it, he speaks very softly. He mutters and he was doing it throughout. He had made that mistake where he had left his mic on going to the bathroom several times. And he talks to himself in the bathroom. It's almost like in the mirror is, is what I'm picturing. And like I said, the jury listened to the raw footage completely unedited because of course for us, as the audience watching it on HBO, we don't know what was said without editing. We don't know if they mix things around because we don't see him on camera. We just hear him. So the jury has heard the whole thing. I don't know if I've heard an unedited version. I'm not sure if the version I heard was even edited, but that's kind of where I'm coming from. If it was like a conversation he was having with someone or a phone call or who knows, like I I think that the confession would have been more clear cut in the film. It was presented as him saying, what the hell did I do? Killed them all, of course. And before he said that, he said, um, there it is. You're caught, presumably in reference to the cadaver note. He was right. I was wrong. And he made a comment about how much he was burping. Like he said, oh, and the burping, what was up with that? Cause he keeps, burping and stammering and blinking he has some odd tics that he attributes to uh, being on the autism spectrum so he's reflecting on that conversation seeing how bad it made him look talking about how nervous he must have looked and then he says what the hell did i do killed them all of course well defense attorney chip lewis said this week 
that in our beautiful country, we do not convict folks based on made-for-TV movies. Fortunately for Mr. Durst, they failed to deliver the required evidence to support their script slash theory. So apparently part of the defense's argument is that uh, this was this is like a Hallmark movie and not really what happened. Yes. Durst is now claiming that he was fed lines by the producers. Like when he said that the cadaver note is something that only the killer could have written. He said that was fed to him and he didn't actually mean that and that it shouldn't be used against him. He has some someone or something to blame for pretty much everything that's incriminating. So we're going to have to have you back on once the verdict is reached uh, and, and we can discuss that. Um, how do you feel like it's going to go? I feel like putting him on the stand was a huge mistake because, like I said, he's he's been caught in dozens and dozens of lies that he's told authorities and friends over the years regarding multiple murders. It's very concerning. His credibility is completely destroyed. I think that if he had just stayed silent throughout this process and they planted the seeds of doubt with, you know, production planning him lines, it's not really like in the movies, this is real life, this is his life. You know, he was found not guilty for killing Morris Black. They're saying this is all connected. He was arrested for Morris Black, but not for Kathy. He wasn't convicted of any of these things per se. I think it's possible that the jury could have been at least hung. But now with him on the stand, I, I feel strongly that they'll convict him. I personally feel strongly that he's guilty, but that doesn't mean that I feel that a jury would feel the same way. Just a disclaimer. Right. And the judge uh, apparently remarked outside the jury's presence that cross-examination had been devastating and appeared to have destroyed Durst's credibility. So it, it would appear that the judge agrees with you, Chloe. He actually asked the prosecution to like wrap it up pretty much because I believe the total amount of time would sum up to about 24 hours or more that Durst was on the stand for the entire day just being questioned and the tone can be pretty confrontational in a cross-examination, pretty exhausting for someone who is hard of hearing and can't speak and is weak. It's a, it's a lot. And I guess the jury had noted to the judge that it was becoming excessive and that the point was made. So he had them wrap it up. And like you said, Tim, it seems that he agrees that the defendant doesn't have any credibility. There was a film that was uh, titled All Good Things, and it was from the same filmmaker who made the jinx, uh, Andrew Jarecki. And that was a fictionalized account of the uh, of the event and, and of Durst's life and, and his alleged crimes. Do you think that based on what the defense was going at by saying this, uh, this script and trying to present it as something that was more of a glamorized Hollywood production, do you think just the, the making of that film, All Good Things, and then the filmmaker's transition to the documentary involving the same subject in the jinx do you think that affected negatively or positively or at all with the jury that maybe this was a little bit too over sensationalized it's a good question and i think that it actually worked out to the benefit of the prosecution it kind of worked on the other end because durst apparently had reached out to drecky after all good things came out and said that he liked it he liked the movie. He liked what he did with it and wanted to work with him further to tell his life story. 
in a documentary format. He didn't want to do a true crime, but he wanted his story told, you know, a little narcissistic, uh, perhaps a clue of that. But this was something that the prosecution cited as a little bit suspicious at the end of Robert Durst. This is a movie saying that you killed your wife, killed your dog, had your best friend killed and then killed your neighbor. Like it's, it's not a flattering portrayal. If I were Robert Durst, the only portrayal that I would be happy with is one that was innocent. So it's just a little bit strange. And I think later on, the only issue that Bob said he had with all the things was that it depicted him killing the dog. It's like, what about killing your wife? Like, do you care about that depiction? Apparently not. Robert's kind of saying, yeah, working with Jarecki was a big mistake. I shouldn't have worked with him. But in the end, why would he why would he like the movie if it depicts him as this killer, which he says he's not? And uh, I do just want to mention that um, this isn't exactly a no body case, but it is kind of a no body adjacent prosecution in a lot of ways, because the motive that they're giving um, for Durst's killing of Berman is that he was trying to silence the knowledge of his wife's disappearance, that Durst also did that. So it's kind of bold of the prosecutors to combine these cases, I think. And I I think that's why it kind of makes it a nobody adjacent case. And uh, I wish them the best of luck on this. Me too. It's, It's interesting. In the American criminal justice system, when you're looking at crimes, they don't typically approach it as a pattern of behavior. They usually look at offenses on an individual basis and a judge typically like won't welcome testimony about other cases. But in this situation, you're right. The, the prosecution is coming at it by intertwining everything and telling a story. And it's a little bit risky when they're including elements where it, he hasn't been convicted of certain things. He hasn't even been arrested for some of these things. So it is a risk. And it's making it so the jury is going to have to believe all of it. And, and they may or may not. I I think they're right on the money personally, but I do think it's an interesting, more cumulative pattern of behavior approach that they're taking, which I don't typically see in, in most of these proceedings that I have watched. So Chloe, you are back. As we've discussed in the ring with True Crime Twins, aside from Sophia McKenna, what else do you and your twin sister Melina have coming up? Besides Sophia McKenna, we will be covering the mysterious death of Tamla Horsford, who was found on the grass of a friend's house after an adult sleepover party. The death was ruled accidental, but many people believe that Tamla was murdered and that it's being covered up. So we are very much looking forward to releasing our content discussing that case as well. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. 
offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com.